Part two of Philebus by Plato, translated by Benjamin Joet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Socrates, very good. Let us begin then, Protarchus, by asking a question. Protarchus, what question? Socrates, whether all this which they call the universe is left to the guidance of unreason and chance medley or on the contrary as our fathers have declared ordered and governed by a marvellous intelligence and wisdom protarchus wide asunder are the two assertions illustrious socrates for that which you were just now saying to me appears to be blasphemy but the other assertion that mind orders all things is worthy of the aspect of the world and of the sun and of the moon and of the stars and of the whole circle of the heavens and never will i say or think otherwise socrates shall we then agree with them of old time in maintaining this doctrine not merely reasserting the notions of others without risk to ourselves but shall we share in the danger and take our part of the reproach which will await us when an ingenious individual declares that all is disorder protarchus that would certainly be my wish socrates then now please to consider the next stage of the argument protarchus let me hear socrates we see that the elements which enter into the nature of the bodies of all animals fire water air and as the storm-tossed sailor cries land reappear in the constitution of the world protarchus the proverb may be applied to us for truly the storm gathers over us and we are at our wit's end socrates there is something to be remarked about each of these elements protarchus what is it socrates only a small fraction of any one of them exists in us and that of a mean sort and not in any way pure or having any power worthy of its nature one instance will prove this of all of them there is fire within us and in the universe protarchus true socrates and is not our fire small and weak and mean but the fire in the universe is wonderful in quantity and beauty and in every power that fire has protarchus most true socrates and is the fire in the universe nourished and generated and ruled by the fire in us or is the fire in you and me and in other animals dependent on the universal fire protarchus that is a question which does not deserve an answer socrates right and you would say the same if i am not mistaken of the earth which is in animals and the earth which is in the universe and you would give a similar reply about all the other elements protarchus why how could any man who gave any other be deemed in his senses socrates i do not think that he could but now go on to the next step when we saw those elements of which we have been speaking gathered up in one did we not call them a body protarchus we did socrates and the same may be said of the cosmos which for the same reason may be considered to be a body because made up of the same elements protarchus very true socrates but is our body nourished wholly by this body or is this body nourished by our body thence deriving and having the qualities of which we were just now speaking protarchus that again socrates is a question which does not deserve to be asked socrates well tell me is this question worth asking protarchus what question socrates may our body be said to have a soul protarchus clearly socrates and whence comes that soul my dear protarchus unless the body of the universe which contains elements like those in our bodies but in every way fairer had also a soul can there be another source protarchus clearly socrates that is the only source socrates why yes protarchus for surely we cannot imagine that of the four classes the finite the infinite the composition of the two and the cause the fourth which enters into all things giving to our body souls and the art of self-management and of healing disease and operating in other ways to heal and organize having too all the attributes of wisdom we cannot i say imagine that 
whereas the selfsame elements exist both in the entire heaven and in great provinces of the heaven only fairer and purer this last should not also in that higher sphere have designed the noblest and fairest things Protarchus, such a supposition is quite unreasonable socrates then if this be denied should we not be wise in adopting the other view and maintaining that there is in the universe a mighty infinite and an adequate limit of which we have often spoken as well as a presiding cause of no mean power which orders and arranges years and seasons and months and may be justly called wisdom and mind Protarchus, most justly socrates and wisdom and mind cannot exist without soul Protarchus, certainly not socrates and in the divine nature of zeus would you not say that there is the soul and mind of a king because there is in him the power of the cause and other gods have other attributes by which they are pleased to be called Protarchus, very true socrates do not then suppose that these words are rashly spoken by us o Protarchus, for they are in harmony with the testimony of those who said of old time that mind rules the universe Protarchus, true socrates and they furnish an answer to my inquiry for they imply that mind is the parent of that class of the four which we called the cause of all and i think that you now have my answer Protarchus, i have indeed and yet i did not observe that you had answered socrates a jest is sometimes refreshing Protarchus, when it interrupts earnest Protarchus, very true socrates i think friend that we have now pretty clearly set forth the class to which mind belongs and what is the power of mind Protarchus, true socrates and the class to which pleasure belongs has also been long ago discovered Protarchus, yes socrates and let us remember too of both of them one that mind was akin to the cause and of this family and two that pleasure is infinite and belongs to the class which neither has nor ever will have in itself a beginning middle or end of its own Protarchus, i shall be sure to remember socrates we must next examine what is their place and under what conditions they are generated and we will begin with pleasure since her class was first examined and yet pleasure cannot be rightly tested apart from pain Protarchus, if this is the road let us take it socrates i wonder whether you would agree with me about the origin of pleasure and pain Protarchus, what do you mean socrates i mean to say that their natural seat is in the mixed class Protarchus, and would you tell me again sweet socrates which of the aforesaid classes is the mixed one socrates i will my fine fellow to the best of my ability Protarchus, very good socrates let us then understand the mixed class to be that which we placed third in the list of four Protarchus, that which followed the infinite and the finite and in which you ranked health and if i am not mistaken harmony socrates capital and now will you please to give me your best attention Protarchus, proceed i am attending socrates i say that when the harmony in animals is dissolved there is also a dissolution of nature and a generation of pain Protarchus, that is very probable socrates and the restoration of harmony and return to nature is the source of pleasure if i may be allowed to speak in the fewest and shortest words about matters of the greatest moment Protarchus, i believe that you are right socrates but will you try to be a little plainer socrates do not obvious and everyday phenomena furnish the simplest illustration Protarchus, what phenomena do you mean socrates hunger for example is a dissolution and a pain Protarchus, true socrates whereas eating is a replenishment and a pleasure Protarchus, yes socrates thirst again is a destruction and a pain but the effect of moisture replenishing the dry place is a pleasure once more the unnatural separation and dissolution caused by heat is painful and the natural restoration and refrigeration is pleasant 
Protarchus, very true. Socrates, and the unnatural freezing of the moisture in an animal is pain, and the natural process of resolution and return of the elements to their original state is pleasure. And would not the general proposition seem to you to hold that the destroying of the natural union of the finite and infinite, which, as I was observing before, make up the class of living beings, is pain, and that the process of return of all things to their own nature is pleasure? Protarchus, granted, what you say has a general truth. Socrates, here then is one kind of pleasures and pains originating severally in the two processes which we have described. Protarchus, good. Socrates, let us next assume that in the soul herself there is an antecedent hope of pleasure which is sweet and refreshing, and an expectation of pain, fearful and anxious. Protarchus, yes, this is another class of pleasures and pains, which is of the soul only, apart from the body, and is produced by expectation. Socrates. Right, for in the analysis of these, pure as I suppose them to be, the pleasures being unalloyed with pain, and the pains with pleasure, methinks that we shall see clearly whether the whole class of pleasure is to be desired, or whether this quality of entire desirableness is not rather to be attributed to another of the classes which have been mentioned, and whether pleasure and pain, like heat and cold and other things of the same kind, are not sometimes to be desired, and sometimes not to be desired, as being not in themselves good, but only sometimes, and in some instances admitting of the nature of good. Protarchus, you say most truly that this is the track which the investigation should pursue. Socrates, well then, assuming that pain ensues on the dissolution, and pleasure on the restoration of the harmony, let us now ask what will be the condition of animated beings who are neither in process of restoration nor of dissolution, and, mind what you say, I ask whether any animal who is in that condition can possibly have any feeling of pleasure or pain, great or small. Protarchus, certainly not. Socrates, then, here we have a third state, over and above that, of pleasure and of pain. Protarchus, very true. Socrates, and do not forget that there is such a state. It will make a great difference in our judgment of pleasure, whether we remember this or not. And I should like to say a few words about it. Protarchus, what have you to say? Socrates, why, you know that if a man chooses the life of wisdom, there is no reason why he should not live in this neutral state. Protarchus, you mean that he may live neither rejoicing nor sorrowing? Socrates, yes, and, if I remember rightly, when the lives were compared, no degree of pleasure, whether great or small, was thought to be necessary to him who chose the life of thought and wisdom. Protarchus, yes, certainly we said so. Socrates, then he will live without pleasure, and who knows whether this may not be the most divine of all lives? Protarchus, if so, the gods at any rate cannot be supposed to have either joy or sorrow. Socrates, certainly not. There would be a great impropriety in the assumption of either alternative. But whether the gods are or are not indifferent to pleasure is a point which may be considered hereafter, if in any way relevant to the argument. And whatever is the conclusion, we will place it to the account of mind in her contest for the second place, should she have to resign the first. Protarchus, just so. Socrates, the other class of pleasures, which, as we were saying, is purely mental, is entirely derived from memory? Protarchus, what do you mean? Socrates, I must, first of all, analyze memory, or rather, perception, which is prior to memory, if the subject of our discussion is ever to be properly cleared up. Protarchus, how will you proceed? Socrates, let us imagine affections of the body, which are extinguished before they reach the soul, and leave her unaffected, and again other affections which vibrate through both soul and body, and impart a shock to both, and to each of them. Protarchus, granted. Socrates, and the soul may be truly said to be oblivious of the first, but not of the second? Protarchus, quite true. Socrates, 
when i say oblivious do not suppose that i mean forgetfulness in a literal sense for forgetfulness is the exit of memory which in this case has not yet entered and to speak of the loss of that which is not yet in existence and never has been is a contradiction do you see protarchus yes socrates then just be so good as to change the terms protarchus how shall i change them socrates instead of the oblivion of the soul when you are describing the state in which she is unaffected by the shocks of the body say unconsciousness protarchus i see socrates and the union or communion of soul and body in one feeling and motion would be properly called consciousness protarchus most true socrates then now we know the meaning of the word protarchus yes socrates and memory may i think be rightly described as the preservation of consciousness protarchus right socrates but do we not distinguish memory from recollection protarchus i think so socrates and do we not mean by recollection the power which the soul has of recovering when by herself some feeling which she experienced when in company with the body protarchus certainly socrates and when she recovers of herself the lost recollection of some consciousness or knowledge the recovery is termed recollection and reminiscence protarchus very true socrates there is a reason why i say all this protarchus what is it socrates i want to attain the plainest possible notion of pleasure and desire as they exist in the mind only apart from the body and the previous analysis helps to show the nature of both protarchus then now socrates let us proceed to the next point socrates there are certainly many things to be considered in discussing the generation and whole complexion of pleasure at the outset we must determine the nature and seed of desire protarchus ay let us inquire into that for we shall lose nothing socrates nay protarchus we shall surely lose the puzzle if we find the answer protarchus a fair retort but let us proceed socrates did we not place hunger thirst and the like in the class of desires protarchus certainly socrates and yet they are very different what common nature have we in view when we call them by a single name protarchus by heaven socrates that is a question which is not easily answered but it must be answered socrates then let us go back to our examples protarchus where shall we begin socrates do we mean anything when we say a man thirsts protarchus yes socrates we mean to say that he is empty protarchus of course socrates and is not thirst desire protarchus yes of drink socrates would you say of drink or of replenishment with drink protarchus i should say of replenishment with drink socrates then he who is empty desires as would appear the opposite of what he experiences for he is empty and desires to be full protarchus clearly so socrates but how can a man who is empty for the first time attain either by perception or memory to any apprehension of replenishment of which he has no present or past experience protarchus impossible socrates and yet he who desires surely desires something protarchus of course socrates he does not desire that which he experiences for he experiences thirst and thirst is emptiness but he desires replenishment protarchus true socrates then there must be something in the thirsty man which in some way apprehends replenishment protarchus there must socrates and that cannot be the body for the body is supposed to be emptied protarchus yes socrates the only remaining alternative is that the soul apprehends the replenishment by the help of memory as is obvious for what other way can there be protarchus i cannot imagine any other socrates but do you see the consequence protarchus what is it socrates that there is no such thing as desire of the body protarchus why so socrates 
why because the argument shows that the endeavour of every animal is to the reverse of his bodily state protarchus yes socrates and the impulse which leads him to the opposite of what he is experiencing proves that he has a memory of the opposite state protarchus true socrates and the argument having proved that memory attracts us towards the objects of desire proves also that the impulses and the desires and the moving principle in every living being have their origin in the soul protarchus most true socrates the argument will not allow that our body either hungers or thirsts or has any similar experience protarchus quite right socrates let me make a further observation the argument appears to me to imply that there is a kind of life which consists in these affections protarchus of what affections and of what kind of life are you speaking socrates i am speaking of being emptied and replenished and of all that relates to the preservation and destruction of living beings as well as of the pain which is felt in one of these states and of the pleasure which succeeds to it protarchus true socrates and what would you say of the intermediate state protarchus what do you mean by intermediate socrates i mean when a person is in actual suffering and yet remembers past pleasures which if they would only return would relieve him but as yet he has them not may we not say of him that he is in an intermediate state protarchus certainly socrates would you say that he was wholly pained or wholly pleased protarchus nay i should say that he has two pains in his body there is the actual experience of pain and in his soul longing and expectation socrates what do you mean protarchus by the two pains may not a man who is empty have at one time a sure hope of being filled and at other times be quite in despair protarchus very true socrates and has he not the pleasure of memory when he is hoping to be filled and yet in that he is empty is he not at the same time in pain protarchus certainly socrates then man and the other animals have at the same time both pleasure and pain protarchus i suppose so socrates but when a man is empty and has no hope of being filled there will be the double experience of pain you observed this and inferred that the double experience was the single case possible protarchus quite true socrates socrates shall the inquiry into these states of feeling be made the occasion of raising a question protarchus what question socrates whether we ought to say that the pleasures and pains of which we are speaking are true or false or some true and some false protarchus but how socrates can there be false pleasures and pains socrates and how protarchus can there be true and false fears or true and false expectations or true and false opinions protarchus i grant that opinions may be true or false but not pleasures socrates what do you mean i am afraid that we are raising a very serious inquiry protarchus there i agree socrates and yet my boy for you are one of philebos's boys the point to be considered is whether the inquiry is relevant to the argument protarchus surely socrates no tedious and irrelevant discussion can be allowed what is said should be pertinent protarchus right socrates i am always wondering at the question which has now been raised protarchus how so socrates do you deny that some pleasures are false and others true protarchus to be sure i do socrates would you say that no one ever seemed to rejoice and yet did not rejoice or seemed to feel pain and yet did not feel pain sleeping or waking mad or lunatic protarchus so we have always held socrates socrates but were you right shall we inquire into the truth of your opinion protarchus i think that we should socrates let us then put into more precise terms the question which has arisen about pleasure and opinion is there such a thing as opinion protarchus yes socrates and such a thing as pleasure protarchus yes socrates and an opinion must be of something protarchus true socrates 
and a man must be pleased by something? Protarchus, quite correct. Socrates, and whether the opinion be right or wrong makes no difference, it will still be an opinion? Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, and he who is pleased, whether he is rightly pleased or not, will always have a real feeling of pleasure? Protarchus, yes, that is also quite true. Socrates, then how can opinion be both true and false, and pleasure true only, although pleasure and opinion are both equally real? Protarchus, yes, that is the question. Socrates, you mean that opinion admits of truth and falsehood, and hence becomes not merely opinion, but opinion of a certain quality, and this is what you think should be examined? Protarchus, yes. Socrates, and further, even if we admit the existence of qualities in other objects, may not pleasure and pain be simple and devoid of quality? Protarchus, clearly. Socrates, but there is no difficulty in seeing that pleasure and pain, as well as opinion, have qualities, for they are great or small, and have various degrees of intensity, as was indeed said long ago by us. Protarchus, quite true. Socrates, and if badness attaches to any of them, Protarchus, then we should speak of a bad opinion, or of a bad pleasure? Protarchus, quite true, Socrates. Socrates, and if rightness attaches to any of them, should we not speak of a right opinion, or right pleasure, and in like manner of the reverse of rightness? Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, and if the thing opined be erroneous, might we not say that the opinion, being erroneous, is not right or rightly opined? Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, and if we see a pleasure or pain which errs in respect of its object, shall we call that right or good, or by any honourable name? Protarchus, not if the pleasure is mistaken. How could we? Socrates, and surely pleasure often appears to accompany an opinion which is not true but false? Protarchus, certainly it does. And in that case, Socrates, as we were saying, the opinion is false but no one could call the actual pleasure false. Socrates, how eagerly, Protarchus, do you rush to the defence of pleasure? Protarchus, nay, Socrates, I only repeat what I hear. Socrates, and is there no difference, my friend, between that pleasure which is associated with right opinion and knowledge, and that which is often found in all of us associated with falsehood and ignorance? Protarchus, there must be a very great difference between them. Socrates, then, now, let us proceed to contemplate this difference. Protarchus, lead, and I will follow. Socrates, well then, my view is... Protarchus, what is it? Socrates, we agree, do we not, that there is such a thing as false, and also such a thing as true opinion? Protarchus, yes. Socrates, and pleasure and pain, as I was just now saying, are often consequent upon these, upon true and false opinion, I mean. Protarchus, very true. Socrates, and do not opinion and the endeavour to form an opinion always spring from memory and perception? Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, might we imagine the process to be something of this nature? Protarchus, of what nature? Socrates, an object may be often seen at a distance not very clearly, and the seer may want to determine what it is which he sees. Protarchus, very likely. Socrates, Soon he begins to interrogate himself. Protarchus, in what manner? Socrates, he asks himself, What is that which appears to be standing by the rock under the tree? This is the question which he may be supposed to put to himself when he sees such an appearance. Protarchus, true. Socrates, to which he may guess the right answer, saying, as if in a whisper to himself, It is a man. Protarchus, very good. Socrates, or again, he may be misled, and then he will say, No, it is a figure made by the shepherds. Protarchus, yes. Socrates, and if he has a companion, he repeats his thought to him in articulate sounds, and what was before an opinion has now become a proposition. Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, but if he be walking alone when these thoughts occur to him, he may not unfrequently keep them in his mind for a considerable time. Protarchus, very true. Socrates, well now, I wonder whether you would agree in my explanation of this phenomenon. Protarchus, what is your explanation? Socrates, 
i think that the soul at such times is like a book protarchus how so socrates memory and perception meet and they and their attendant feelings seem to me almost to write down words in the soul and when the inscribing feeling writes truly then true opinion and true propositions which are the expressions of opinion come into our souls but when the scribe within us writes falsely the result is false protarchus i quite assent and agree to your statement socrates i must bespeak your favour also for another artist who is busy at the same time in the chambers of the soul protarchus who is he socrates the painter who after the scribe has done his work draws images in the soul of the things which he has described protarchus but when and how does he do this socrates when a man besides receiving from sight or some other sense certain opinions or statements sees in his mind the images of the subjects of them is not this a very common mental phenomenon protarchus certainly socrates and the images answering to true opinions and words are true and to false opinions and words false are they not protarchus they are socrates if we are right so far there arises a further question protarchus what is it socrates whether we experience the feeling of which i am speaking only in relation to the present and the past or in relation to the future also protarchus i should say in relation to all times alike socrates have not purely mental pleasures and pains been described already as in some cases anticipations of the bodily ones from which we may infer that anticipatory pleasures and pains have to do with the future protarchus most true socrates and do all those writings and paintings which as we were saying a little while ago are produced in us relate to the past and present only and not to the future protarchus to the future very much socrates when you say very much you mean to imply that all these representations are hopes about the future and that mankind are filled with hopes in every stage of existence protarchus exactly socrates answer me another question protarchus what question socrates a just and pious and good man is the friend of the gods is he not protarchus certainly he is socrates and the unjust and utterly bad man is the reverse protarchus true socrates and all men as we were saying just now are always filled with hopes protarchus certainly socrates in these hopes as they are termed are propositions which exist in the minds of each of us protarchus yes socrates and the fancies of hope are also pictured in us a man may often have a vision of a heap of gold and pleasures ensuing and in the picture there may be a likeness of himself mightily rejoicing over his good fortune protarchus true socrates and may we not say that the good being friends of the gods have generally true pictures presented to them and the bad false pictures protarchus certainly socrates the bad too have pleasures painted in their fancy as well as the good but i presume that they are false pleasures protarchus they are socrates the bad then commonly delight in false pleasures and the good in true pleasures protarchus doubtless socrates then upon this view there are false pleasures in the souls of men which are a ludicrous imitation of the true and there are pains of a similar character protarchus there are socrates and did we not allow that a man who had an opinion at all had a real opinion but often about things which had no existence either in the past present or future protarchus quite true socrates and this was the source of false opinion and opining am i not right protarchus yes socrates and must we not attribute to pleasure and pain a similar real but illusory character protarchus how do you mean socrates i mean to say that a man must be admitted to have real pleasure who is pleased with anything or anyhow and he may be pleased about things which neither have nor ever had any real existence and more often than not are never likely to exist protarchus yes socrates that again is undeniable socrates 
and may not the same be said about fear and anger and the like are they not often false protarchus quite so socrates and can opinions be good or bad except in as far as they are true or false protarchus in no other way socrates nor can pleasures be conceived to be bad except in so far as they are false protarchus nay socrates that is the very opposite of the truth for no one would call pleasures and pains bad because they are false but by reason of some other great corruption to which they are liable socrates well of pleasures which are corrupt and caused by corruption we will hereafter speak if we care to continue the inquiry for the present i would rather show by another argument that there are many false pleasures existing or coming into existence in us because this may assist our final decision Protarchus, very true that is to say if there are such pleasures socrates i think that there are Protarchus, but this is an opinion which should be well assured and not rest upon a mere assertion Protarchus, very good socrates then now like wrestlers let us approach and grasp this new argument Protarchus, proceed socrates we were maintaining a little while since that when desires as they are termed exist in us then the body has separate feelings apart from the soul do you remember Protarchus, yes i remember that you said so socrates and the soul was supposed to desire the opposite of the bodily state while the body was the source of any pleasure or pain which was experienced Protarchus, true socrates then now you may infer what happens in such cases Protarchus, what am i to infer socrates that in such cases pleasures and pains come simultaneously and there is a juxtaposition of the opposite sensations which correspond to them as has been already shown Protarchus, clearly socrates and there is another point to which we have agreed Protarchus, what is it socrates that pleasure and pain both admit of more and less and that they are of the class of infinites Protarchus, certainly we said so socrates but how can we rightly judge of them Protarchus, how can we socrates it is our intention to judge of their comparative importance and intensity measuring pleasure against pain and pain against pain and pleasure against pleasure Protarchus, yes such is our intention and we shall judge of them accordingly socrates well take the case of sight does not the nearness or distance of magnitudes obscure their true proportions and make us opine falsely and do we not find the same illusion happening in the case of pleasures and pains Protarchus, yes socrates and in a degree far greater socrates then what we are now saying is the opposite of what we were saying before Protarchus, what was that socrates then the opinions were true and false and infected the pleasures and pains with their own falsity Protarchus, very true socrates but now it is the pleasures which are said to be true and false because they are seen at various distances and subjected to comparison the pleasures appear to be greater and more vehement when placed side by side with the pains and the pains when placed side by side with the pleasures Protarchus, certainly and for the reason which you mention socrates and suppose you part off from pleasures and pains the element which makes them appear to be greater or less than they really are you will acknowledge that this element is illusory and you will never say that the corresponding excess or defect of pleasure or pain is real or true Protarchus, certainly not socrates next let us see whether in another direction we may not find pleasures and pains existing and appearing in living beings which are still more false than these Protarchus, what are they and how shall we find them socrates if i am not mistaken i have often repeated that pains and aches and suffering and uneasiness of all sorts arise out of a corruption of nature caused by concretions and dissolutions and repletions and evacuations and also by growth and decay Protarchus, yes that has been often said socrates and we have also agreed that the restoration of the natural state is pleasure Protarchus, 
Right. Socrates. But now let us suppose an interval of time at which the body experiences none of these changes. Protarchus. When can that be, Socrates? Socrates. Your question, Protarchus, does not help the argument. Protarchus. Why not, Socrates? Socrates. Because it does not prevent me from repeating mine. Protarchus. And what was that? Socrates. Why, Protarchus, admitting that there is no such interval, I may ask, what would be the necessary consequence if there were? Protarchus, you mean, what would happen if the body were not changed, either for good or bad? Socrates, yes. Protarchus, why then, Socrates, I should suppose that there would be neither pleasure nor pain? Socrates, very good, but still, if I am not mistaken, you do assert that we must always be experiencing one of them that is what the wise tell us for say they all things are ever flowing up and down protarchus yes and their words are of no mean authority socrates of course for they are no mean authorities themselves and i should like to avoid the brunt of their argument shall i tell you how i mean to escape from them and you shall be the partner of my flight protarchus how socrates to them we will say good but are we or living things in general always conscious of what happens to us for example of our growth or the like are we not on the contrary almost wholly unconscious of this and similar phenomena you must answer for them protarchus the latter alternative is the true one socrates then we were not right in saying just now that motions going up and down cause pleasures and pains protarchus true socrates a better and more unexceptionable way of speaking will be protarchus what socrates if we say that the great changes produce pleasures and pains but that the moderate and lesser ones do neither protarchus that socrates is the more correct mode of speaking socrates but if this be true the life to which i was just now referring again appears protarchus what life socrates the life which we affirmed to be devoid either of pain or of joy. Protarchus, very true. Socrates, we may assume then that there are three lives, one pleasant, one painful, and the third which is neither. What say you? Protarchus, I should say, as you do, that there are three of them. Socrates, but if so, the negation of pain will not be the same with pleasure. Protarchus, certainly not. Socrates, then, when you hear a person saying that always to live without pain is the pleasantest of all things, what would you understand him to mean by that statement? Protarchus, I think that by pleasure he must mean the negative of pain. Socrates, let us take any three things, or suppose that we embellish a little and call the first gold, the second silver, and there shall be a third which is neither. Protarchus, very good. Socrates, now, can that which is neither be either gold or silver? Protarchus, impossible. Socrates, no more can that neutral or middle life be rightly or reasonably spoken or thought of as pleasant or painful? Protarchus, certainly not. Socrates, and yet, my friend, there are, as we know, persons who say and think so. Protarchus, certainly. Socrates, and do they think that they have pleasure when they are free from pain? Protarchus, they say so. Socrates, and they must think, or they would not say that they have pleasure. Protarchus, I suppose not. Socrates, and yet if pleasure and the negation of pain are of distinct natures, they are wrong. Protarchus, but they are undoubtedly of distinct natures. Socrates, then shall we take the view that they are three, as we were just now saying, or that they are two only, the one being a state of pain which is an evil, and the other a cessation of pain, which is of itself a good, and is called pleasant. Protarchus, but why, Socrates, do we ask the question at all? I do not see the reason. Socrates, you, Protarchus, have clearly never heard of certain enemies of our friend Philebos? Protarchus, and who may they be? Socrates, certain persons who are reputed to be masters in natural philosophy, who deny the very existence of pleasure. Protarchus, indeed. Socrates, they say that what the school of Philebos calls pleasures are all of them only avoidances of pain. Protarchus, 
and would you socrates have us agree with them socrates why no i would rather use them as a sort of diviners who divine the truth not by rules of art but by an instinctive repugnance and extreme detestation which a noble nature has of the power of pleasure in which they think that there is nothing sound and her seductive influence is declared by them to be witchcraft and not pleasure this is the use which you may make of them and when you have considered the various grounds of their dislike you shall hear from me what i deem to be true pleasures having thus examined the nature of pleasure from both points of view we will bring her up for judgment Protarchus, well said socrates then let us enter into an alliance with these philosophers and follow in the track of their dislike i imagine that they would say something of this sort they would begin at the beginning and ask whether if we wanted to know the nature of any quality such as hardness we should be more likely to discover it by looking at the hardest things rather than at the least hard you Protarchus, shall answer these severe gentlemen as you answer me Protarchus, by all means and i reply to them that you should look at the greatest instances socrates then if we want to see the true nature of pleasures as a class we should not look at the most diluted pleasures but at the most extreme and most vehement Protarchus, in that every one will agree socrates and the obvious instances of the greatest pleasures as we have often said are the pleasures of the body Protarchus, certainly socrates and are they felt by us to be or become greater when we are sick or when we are in health and here we must be careful in our answer or we shall come to grief Protarchus, how will that be socrates why because we might be tempted to answer when we are in health Protarchus, yes that is the natural answer socrates well but are not those pleasures the greatest of which mankind have the greatest desires Protarchus, true socrates and do not people who are in a fever or any similar illness feel cold or thirst or other bodily affections more intensely am i not right in saying that they have a deeper want and greater pleasure in the satisfaction of their want Protarchus, that is obvious as soon as it is said socrates well then shall we not be right in saying that if a person would wish to see the greatest pleasures he ought to go and look not at health but at disease and here you must distinguish do not imagine that i mean to ask whether those who are very ill have more pleasures than those who are well but understand that i am speaking of the magnitude of pleasure i want to know where pleasures are found to be most intense for as i say we have to discover what is pleasure and what they mean by pleasure who deny her very existence Protarchus, i think i follow you socrates you will soon have a better opportunity of showing whether you do or not Protarchus. answer now and tell me whether you see i will not say more but more intense and excessive pleasures in wantonness than in temperance reflect before you speak Protarchus, i understand you and see that there is a great difference between them the temperate are restrained by the wise man's aphorism of never too much which is their rule but excess of pleasure possessing the minds of fools and wantons becomes madness and makes them shout with delight socrates very good and if this be true then the greatest pleasures and pains will clearly be found in some vicious state of soul and body and not in a virtuous state Protarchus, certainly socrates and ought we not to select some of these for examination and see what makes them the greatest Protarchus, to be sure we ought socrates take the case of the pleasures which arise out of certain disorders Protarchus, what disorders socrates the pleasures of unseemly disorders which our severe friends utterly detest Protarchus, what pleasures socrates such for example as the relief of itching and other ailments by scratching which is the only remedy required for what in heaven's name is the feeling to be called which is thus produced in us pleasure or pain Protarchus, a villainous mixture of some kind socrates i should say socrates i did not introduce the argument o Protarchus, with any personal reference to philobos but because without the consideration of these and similar pleasures we shall not be able to determine the point at issue 
Protarchus, then we had better proceed to analyze this family of pleasures. Socrates, you mean the pleasures which are mingled with pain? Protarchus, exactly. Socrates, there are some mixtures which are of the body, and only in the body, and others which are of the soul, and only in the soul, while there are other mixtures of pleasures with pains, common both to soul and body, which in their composite state are called sometimes pleasures, and sometimes pains. Protarchus, how is that? Socrates, whenever, in the restoration, or in the derangement of nature, a man experiences two opposite feelings, for example, when he is cold, and is growing warm, or again when he is hot, and is becoming cool, and he wants to have the one, and be rid of the other. The sweet has a bitter, as the common saying is, and both together fasten upon him, and create irritation, and in time drive him to distraction. Protarchus, that description is very true to nature. Socrates, and in these sorts of mixtures the pleasures and pains are sometimes equal, and sometimes one or other of them predominates? Protarchus, true. Socrates, of cases in which the pain exceeds the pleasure, an example is afforded by itching, of which we were just now speaking, and by the tingling which we feel when the boiling and fiery element is within, and the rubbing and motion only relieves the surface, and does not reach the parts affected. Then, if you put them to the fire, and, as a last resort, apply cold to them, you may often produce the most intense pleasure or pain in the inner parts, which contrasts and mingles with the pain or pleasure, as the case may be, of the outer parts, and this is due to the forcible separation of what is united, or to the union of what is separated, and to the juxtaposition of pleasure and pain. Protarchus, quite so. Socrates, sometimes the element of pleasure prevails in a man, and the slight undercurrent of pain makes him tingle, and causes a gentle irritation, or again the excessive infusion of pleasure creates an excitement in him. He even leaps for joy, he assumes all sorts of attitudes, he changes all manner of colours, he gasps for breath, and is quite amazed, and utters the most irrational exclamations. Protarchus, yes, indeed. Socrates, he will say of himself, and others will say of him, that he is dying with these delights, and the more dissipated and good-for-nothing he is, the more vehemently he pursues them in every way. Of all pleasures he declares them to be the greatest, and he reckons him who lives in the most constant enjoyment of them to be the happiest of mankind. Protarchus, that, Socrates, is a very true description of the opinions of the majority about pleasures. Socrates, yes, Protarchus, quite true of the mixed pleasures, which arise out of the communion of external and internal sensations in the body. There are also cases in which the mind contributes an opposite element to the body, whether of pleasure or pain, and the two unite and form one mixture. Concerning these, I have already remarked that when a man is empty, he desires to be full, and has pleasure in hope and pain in vacuity. But now I must further add what I omitted before, that in all these and similar emotions in which body and mind are opposed, and they are innumerable, pleasure and pain coalesce in one. Protarchus, I believe that to be quite true. End of Part 2 of Philebos Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards